The information discussed on this show is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. All content is for general informational purposes only. It's Guys Guy Radio. Here's your host, Robert Manny. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the show where men and women can be at their best and everyone wins Guys Guys Radio. We're here to inform you, inspire you, empower you, and get you to think, feel, and who knows, maybe even act by virtue of the journeys, stories, experiences, and insights of the guests I bring you each and every week to the show. And this week, once again, is no exception. Today, we're going to talk about the cold, cold weather, cold, colder, and probably the coldest you've heard about. My special guest's name is Wayne L. White. He is a commander of three missions to the South Pole. He spent three winters there where the average temperature is minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit. And he did it three times. And it's an amazing story. And he takes us through kind of a procedural in terms of how you choose the teams to go down there, what day-to-day life is, how he made sure he got himself outside almost every day. And it's really interesting stuff. I think you're going to really enjoy our show today and our interview with Wayne L. White because, wow, when you think about it, think about what was the coldest you've ever felt. And I can handle the cold pretty well coming from New York because we get cold winters and we get hot summers and sometimes it's an uncomfortably hot summer with a lot of humidity and stuff. And then when it gets cold in the winter, it can get really cold. It hasn't been that cold for years now, I guess, with the shifting of the climate and stuff like that. But when it's cold, it's cold. But I was thinking about, in preparation for our conversation here, what was the coldest I've ever experienced? What sticks out in my mind? And I was thinking about And I've been all over the world, but I was thinking about a business trip. I went to Boston in January and everything, the ground was covered with snow and ice. It had been cold and icy and snowy for about a month or two. It was a very cold winter. I was like, oh my God, I just had a, you know, business suit and I had a overcoat or like a lined raincoat or something like that for, for the trip because I wasn't spending, planning on spending a lot of time outside. But I remember just walking around the, the, cold up there near the water just went right into my bones and I just had the you know the suit pants on and even though they were some form of wool it might have been even a tropical wool because I may have been unprepared for that type of cold but it was down to about four degrees or so maybe maybe getting down to zero but it just felt so much colder than I'd ever experienced because it was like a wet cold Yet it was a dry cold at the same time, if you can imagine that. And it just got through to my bones. So that's what I remember. And think about what was the coldest you ever were. And then when we get to talking to Wayne, think about Wayne's experience. Because Wayne was in the South Pole three long winters where the average temperature is minus 76 degrees. And think about how you would handle being indoors for most of that time from February through October, it's dark basically, and you're in confined quarters. 
And Wayne made it, a, and he'll get into all of this, he made it a conscious effort to get outside every day. He even went out and ran, if you can imagine that, in minus, minus 76 degrees in the dark out in the South Pole. And it's just uh, amazing what sacrifices you'd have to make in terms of your day-to-day, you know, all of the little conveniences that we have where there, they do have heat and everything, but it's in, they keep the temperature in the low 60s and they have hot running water, and, but the internet access isn't that great. And, you know, you're in a confined place. It was big enough, according to Wayne, and he'll talk about it, but you're, you're pretty much with a group of people for nine months straight in the dark, except for the lighting that is in, inside and some, I guess, uh, spotlights and stuff that are outside. But wow, that would be tough. And as Wayne will get into, one of the toughest tasks you have when you're in that type of situation with a bunch of people, and most of them you don't know before getting into the situation where you're going to be confined with them for nine months of darkness indoors, is, is qualifying and finding the right mix of people who can, one, function well and complete their tasks in an excellent fashion and also be able to kind of play in the icebox, if you will, together because you're down there a long time and people, as you know, any type of work team you've ever been on, people can get on each other's nerves pretty quickly. So real challenges there. And of course, when there's not much to do, people are going to be drinking a little vodka when you're down there probably. And I got to think that alcohol was an issue, and Wayne, of course, will get into that also. So we're going to hear all about it, but think about cold and colder and then coldest, and imagine what it would be like, first of all, visiting the South Pole. Now, Antarctica is pretty big, but the South Pole is at the tip, right in the middle, and not that many folks go down there. There's a lot of other encampments, if you will, in different areas along the coast of Antarctica, but the South Pole itself is way down at the bottom, and when you have a, there's a sign down there, and all four directions have an N on it. So they're all pointing north because you're at the southern tip of the planet Earth. So we're going to get into that with Wayne L. White right now. As you can tell, I'm really excited about it because it's such a cool subject, and he's had such a wonderful experience. So let's do it right now. His, I have to tell you that we had a little bit of a challenge with the, some of the sound, but he's here, and I think you're going to enjoy it. So hang in there. It's Guy's Guy Radio. Okay, Guy's Guy's Radio, the interview portion of our show. And today we're going to talk about the cold, colder, and coldest. My special guest, his name is Wayne L. White. He's written a book called Cold, Three Winters at the South Pole. In this book, he documents his time in the extreme elements and offers a unique perspective on the United States Antarctic program at the South Pole. Wayne's a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps. He served as a civilian contractor in these assignments and also other assignments around the globe for more than 25 years. And he had spent, once again, three years in the Antarctic program at the South Pole. That means winters, long winters, short summers. He's conducted solar expeditions to New Guinea, the Amazon, Africa. He's a member of the Explorer Clubs of New York and the Adventure Club of L.A. and received the 2020 Adventure of the Year Award from the Adventures Club in L.A. He's an amazing guy. It's a really terrific story. I'm so pleased that he's here on Guys Guys Radio. Welcome to the show, Wayne L. White. Robert, I'm thrilled to be here. I've uh, I've watched some of your shows, and I think you, you produce a wonderful 
product. And uh, thank you very much for the invitation to be here today. Let's start right at the beginning. And thank you for the kind words. Your mission, how did you, you traveled around the world, you were a Marine, then you did those trips to New Guinea and places like that. How did you end up in the South Pole in a civilian contractor's role? Robert, that's a very interesting, interesting question in that I am actually kind of a tropical guy. I've always enjoyed the tropics, the warmer places in the world. I spent many years out on tropical islands, uh, working uh, as a civilian contractor, running remote tropical islands. And so my big, uh, my big attraction to Antarctica was actually the, uh, what was known as the heroic age of exploration, where we had Captain Scott and Paul Robinson and Ernest Shackleton down there trying to be first to the pole. Uh, the great struggle that these men went through to be first to the pole or to even just arrive at the pole. That was my true uh, attraction to the South Pole. A good portion of your book, you talk about the interviewing process and screening people for your team, but how did you get selected or invited or express interest in, in this and end up getting there? Well, one thing, one thing that was different about my background than most is that while I didn't initially have this Antarctic program experience, I had I had experience as a leader in remote sites all over the world, and that's unusual. And I remember my boss talking to me about that, uh, saying that people just didn't have my level of experience being around the world in remote sites for 20 years. And um, so so uh, because I had that experience, I was interviewed. And then, you know, as I, as I mentioned in the book, when he asked, uh, my boss asked me during the interview, why do you want this position? I said, because I can't go to Mars. And it was my feeling at the time that working at the South Pole, particularly in that leadership position, was as close as I would ever get to a Mars mission. And that turned out to be true. So what exactly was the, the mission? You went there three years. I don't I think it was two years consecutively, then a year off and then back a year if I'm if I'm unless it was three years. Correct me on that. And then what exactly was the mission? You were in a civilian role. Okay. You were overseeing 40 yeah. or 50 people. Tell us about that. Right. Yeah. Um, I actually ended up spending uh, three winters and two summers and then a part of a summer. A winter there at the South Pole is February 15th to around November 1st. So winter is most of the year. Uh, the summer is uh, from uh, November 1st to about February 15th. So I ended up spending a year there, a complete year, over a year. Going back uh, to the U.S., recruiting and interviewing another team to head down the next year uh, for the, you know, with a year break, I ended up then having that crew, uh, the 2019 crew, and then I did a back-to-back -back winter for the last one, the 2020, where I uh, left for just a few weeks at the end of 2019 and had to come right back for another, you know, nearly 11 months there during 2020, the COVID year, which was a, 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 an amazing experience. Um, yes, I worked as a contractor, civilian contractor, working for, def they were Defense Department contracts, although we worked for the, uh, uh, the, the uh, National Science Foundation through the, you know, the U.S. Uh, Antarctic Program. So we were contractors that supported the U.S. Antarctic Program and the National Science Foundation, which is a wonderful organization, was who funded our contract. Let's add a little context for those who are unfamiliar with what life is like on the South Pole and Antarctica, because I found all of these eye-opening for me. 
Uh, 10 degrees is the warmest temperature on record there in the summer. As Wayne mentioned, the summers are from November through February, beginning of February. It's extremely dry there, 0.03 versus the typical humidity up in the 50s and up in the northern hemisphere, you know, closer to the equator. Summers, once again, they're light. A lot of sunshine in the summer and darkness pretty much from February through October, which must be a challenge. The area is 9,300 feet above sea level, but feels higher due to barometric pressure. Uh, it's mostly a desert. Uh, not that much snow, but it never melts. So the snow piles up on itself. And then the third station that's been built down there now has the capacity to be able to be raised because of the snow that keeps piling up underneath. It's used for astronomy. Um, of course, the internet connections are tricky. Uh, Staffing is a real challenge. And uh, most of the folks are pretty much unreachable for nine months of the year. Did I miss anything there, Wayne, or anything? Uh, no, you correct? really, Robert, you, you explained that very, very well. Uh, some of the points are Antarctica is the highest, driest, coldest place on the planet. I've also heard the windiest, but I don't know that for sure. Highest, driest, coldest is true. All those things matter. That altitude, 9,300 feet, you're sitting on nearly two miles of ice, which then sits on an old continent nearly two miles below. And the issue with that being that you've got 9,300 uh, foot altitude, and then this physiological factor that occurs due when we have low barometric pressure that will actually make it, the human body feel that it's over 12,000 feet. So a person flies from McMurdo to the South Pole, and they can, they can immediately enter a high altitude sickness situation and it happens all the time um, yes and the and the seasons are just as you explained uh, there's a uh, the, the the summertime is 24 hours of, of daylight the average temperature is you know probably minus 10 or 20 somewhere around there for the summer but the winter which is most of the year the average temperature is around minus 76 fahrenheit that would be your average and it'll get colder than minus 100 um, a few times through the winter so in that darkness and through that long winter and with no way of getting out of the station, you deal with certain human factors that I've never seen quite like uh, as at the South Pole. Let's talk a little bit about the screening for the type of individuals that are that go down there because I want to know kind of where the people come from. Are they from all over the world? Can everybody play in the ice box together there based on their nationalities? Is China and Russia involved at all? What criteria do you look for? Because it's a big portion of the book about how you screen people because you don't want to get somebody who goes down there and gets wasted all the time and becomes a real problem yeah. with a bad temper or doesn't get along with people because you're stuck there together in a lot of darkness for many months and a lot of most of the time indoors. How did you manage all of that? I mean, you did a masterful job in screening. I think it was one of the greatest skills you need to have down there. What were you looking for? What are the people like? Where did they come from? What? What? Well, who are these people? Okay, that, that is a fantastic question. I put a lot of that in the book. The book's a primer. Anybody that wants to join the U.S. Antarctic program, there's nothing better out there. It's what I think is straight information on getting into the program, what you face, what we're looking for. And um, maybe answers to a couple of questions, but uh, the the thing is, is that it's the U.S. Antarctic program, so it is confined. U.S. citizens will be the majority of the people that are working on the Antarctic support contract. The eight scientists that go down can vary in nationality. We had Germans, Japanese. Um, let's see, I'm sure there was Canadian, 
there's a couple more. We didn't have Russians, we didn't have Chinese, uh, but we all work together. And the screening process is, is truly an interesting situation. Now, I had spent years out on remote islands where all I could do was interview by the telephone. And more than once, I was uh, uh, surprised when the real person arrived that I had interviewed and came across so well on the phone. And then in, when you saw the person, it was like, oh my God, what did I do? Um, uh, phone is just not enough. And so what we found after one particularly bad year that occurred, not a year I was there, but a year prior, um, you had to have a face-to-face -face interview in Denver to be both primary or even an alternate. We had, you had to actually face a panel, face-to-face, and what was cool about the panel was you had uh, four or five people, most all had great Antarctic experience, most all had wintered in the past, and then we would look for certain traits in people. Some, as I mentioned in the book, and some of it's kind of humorous, you know, uh, we were looking for people who could coexist, peacefully coexist, but also remember this. Now, I've interviewed for years, and one thing that I've learned from all my interviewing is that person sitting on the other side of the table wants something. They want a job. They want a job. And in this case, they want to go to the South Pole. It's very hard to get to the South Pole and very expensive if you want to go as a tourist. So I have something they want. Many people will say about anything that job. You have to go into it kind of knowing that, that they're going to be the most pleasing person that you'd ever want to meet across the table with a suit and tie on or a nice dress in that Denver office. Later, in the darkness of winter, another person might emerge. And I saw that a few times, and I, I do mention that in the book, some humorous situations with that. But th that was the beauty of having a panel. And I do mention in the book the one thing that my first year was excruciating for me to interview my crew members because I had not been there. And I could talk about where I'd been in the world, but I had not been to the South Pole. So when that crew member asked the panel, what does minus 100 feel like? I got a blank stare from me because I had no idea yet. And it was excruciating to be on that edge. But but having the panel and having, and, and that was the first step. Now, we used to have a psychological exam. We, we found the psychological exam was, was weeding out, was catching. Many of the mechanics were having a hard time passing the psychological exam. And so... Um, People, we had one guy, he, he liked NASCAR and he liked, he lived in Texas and he had already worked in McMurdo for years and he fails the psychological exam. Now, I don't know, NASCAR, Texas, he, he's already worked at McMurdo and he fails this thing. So, you know, after we, we, we and, and there's something with mechanics or something the way they work that I think made them look maybe like they were maybe a little, um, not very sociable people during the, during this, this interview and in the, in the MMPI exam. So we actually had that stopped, and what we put in place was a week of this team building, where we took them up into the mountains of Colorado, did building experiments, put them together, doing building things, doing things, working together, where you could watch people. And that, to me, was, was, was an eye-opener. You know, it was much better to see people and how they work. Um, and, I, and, I think, and I found that team building to be, uh, to be uh, something very valuable. Now, you mentioned things like alcohol and, and you know, I, I mentioned it in my book, alcohol is the bane of the remote sites. It's one of the biggest problems that you're going to have. Um, the U.S. Antarctic program is, is no, is, is uh, you know, case in point. And for the most part, I think people handle themselves very, very, very well. But the South Pole, I always made it clear with my crews that should we have a problem, an alcohol-related incident, we could be the crew that got 
the poll dry because that's how they would have handled it. the missing Arctic program. The NSF would have said, uh, you know, if we if there would have been a catastrophic occurrence no boost, right? South Pole, Cut it, off, right? it would have gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. just such as the North Slope in Alaska. And there's a reason for it. So most people handled it well. Some people not as well clearly in the Got summers. It. But here's the thing about that. It's hard to tell how much a person drinks. There's no test for it. So there's a thing on the on their medical form that says, how much do you drink a week? And what we found was, if the guy said, oh, I have three beers a week, he had three beers a day. That was really how it worked. It, 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 people were always under, under you know, uh, of course. They, they will definitely you know, not be honest with it. So there's all kinds of things you do. But that team building experience, and then also you put them through a fire training, which is intense with with going through a, a fire facility where they put you in a fire chamber and get to feel real heat wearing bunker gear because you are the fire department. And then also a medical training. And so by the time you deploy, you've seen a lot of people. Wayne L. White, my special guest on Guys Guys Radio. The name of the book is Cold, Three Winters at the South Pole. I guess our listeners out there would be asking themselves, what are what were the conditions? I mean, there's so many questions, but what were the con what was the day-to-day -day life like? What did the, you know, food? How did you deal with waste? How did you deal with things like music, entertainment, so people weren't crawling up the walls because you're in the dark, you're in, inside most of the time. I want to get to you shortly where you went out outside just about every day, which I think is great and fascinating. Mm -hmm. But yeah. just from a logistics standpoint, how did kind of uh, people play in the icebox together there? Yeah, well, the one good thing, it, good or bad, depends how you look at it, is that the summer, the winter crew is only around 42 people. The station can hold 150. So it's a 50,000 square foot station. There's a lot of room. There's a lot of activities. Everybody gets their own room. It's a tiny little box with no, you know, we still have communal restrooms, but still there's the privacy that affords. Um, food is a huge issue. I write about that a lot in my book uh, because it's such a big issue. It always has been from the early Antarctic expeditions from old Amundsen eating his dogs uh, to Captain Scott dying on his return journey, running out of his uh, biscuits and uh, pemmican and such. To this day, it's a huge issue. And I think that the chefs that work at the South Pole are masterful in making food that is all frozen. It has to be frozen, very little fresh, at least not in the winter. And they're masterful at, at, at producing great dishes. Of course, everybody's different with food. I'm a Marine. I can eat anything. That's one thing my wife does really like, still, <laughs> even after all these years, is I will eat anything. But there are people who are finicky. Oh, that's another thing. You can, I used to ask that question during the, you know, during the interview process about people's food, you know, and then if they started telling me that they like the gluten free something, 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 and they, right. that's not a good thing for the South Pole. You don't have all those food options. You'll be starving down there. So food is, is a major thing. The other thing that's most important, that I thought, was the activities. Uh, people, the poll people are interesting individuals. They have many, many interests. I mean, they're people, pretty eclectic bunch, different than what I worked around with the Defense Department contracts. Uh, and they have so many interesting facets and things that they do that we had a lot of classes. We had language classes. We had an astronomy class. We had my thing, which was called Adventure Movie Night with Wayne, where I'd show an adventure movie and I would talk about uh, what I knew about the, the certain adventure like Scott's trip to the pole or Amundsen or things I knew about from other things through Africa, things like that. Uh, keeping people busy, keeping people having options, things to do, uh, sporting events, a lot of sporting events. 
I felt was a good thing. And, and we did a lot of that. So day-to-day -day life there, the station, we kept it kind of dark. I think people preferred it. The temperatures probably ran around in the 60s. People liked it a little bit cooler, even cooler in some of the rooms. Um, you had frequent contact with the same people every day, all the time. You run into the same people. You eat with the same people. You do things with the same people. And, um, you know, it's something that you you have to uh, you have to. Uh, know that that's what your year is going to be like. How did you determine how far you could run? What did you wear when you were out there for running? Did you have running shoes? You're on the ice. How did that, as a runner, talk to me about that yeah. experience? My running was mostly all in the summertime when it was 24 hours of light. And I would try to run on a packed surface. There was a couple of ice roads, so to speak, where equipment had pressed down uh, the ice. Um, the fresh ice to wear sort of a hard packed surface. And I had these incredible pair of running shoes with cleats that actually zipped up over the laces and they were fantastic. And I would use those to run. Um, I never went real far in run. Heck, there is a, in the summertime, there is a South Pole marathon. There's, there's uh, fit people who are fit enough to, to actually do it. They just make multiple loops around the station, but 26 miles, which is amazing wow. at that altitude to come in at any time. Now I'm not into I'm not into organized things like that. So it wasn't my thing. My thing was to be alone. I really enjoyed that. But I'll say, I need to say this too. So assess conditions. And I was incredibly careful. If I go out, if, if I saw that it was you know, condition, the phase condition where you couldn't see, and I wasn't going to go a certain route. I, I wasn't going to get lost and have the station have a problem. Um, I would walk on the science flag lighting, flag to flag. Uh, which could be difficult even on the on those worst days, even doing that. But I needed to at least see, could our science people make it flag to flag? Was it so bad that you couldn't see the next flag, which could put you in a real bad situation? So I would take that. If the conditions were calmer, I had what I called the grid south route. And that and that route, of course, everything is, is north. But it was, we do have a grid system there, just so we know where things okay. are. And the okay. grid south was the same direction that uh, Captain Scott and Ernest Shackleton would come. Basically, okay. and okay. I would go that route. Okay, I was very, very careful. I'll bet. Uh, guys, guys, radio. My special guest, Wayne L. White. The book is "Cold: Three Winters at the South Pole." What a fascinating conversation we're having. So, how long, if you did get lost out there, Wayne, uh, or anybody's out there, how long could you last before you froze to death? Well. Now, that's a really good one now because I was never lost and I used to practice in the summer during storms. I'd go up from the station and spin around in the storm and then and then get back to the station and almost a white. I could do that. I carried two compasses at all times. I had a fully charged radio, two compasses and two lights, too, in the wintertime, a regular headlamp and a spare. So I was I got good with the compass. And the compass, it, north south means nothing there, but I knew the degrees. I knew where the station was right. by where I was from the degrees, and I could follow that. Uh, so I practiced. I never had that. But you bring up a good, a good question in that every start of winter, we would have a a a, a, a training session with all our crew members that would discuss winter travel. And I used to say to the crew, particularly the second year, the third year, when I had so much time thousands of miles outside i would point to the window i'd say there's death outside that window and i wasn't being melodramatic the truth was it, it was dangerous out there um, i was very very uh very careful um 
I, I wanted my crewmates to be extremely careful. And uh, one of the other things I told them is that if they ever wanted someone to walk out with to a, I'd go with them if they ever wanted that. And I, I was never taken up on that. My folks were quite adept at winter travel, but I was careful. The last thing I wanted to do was get lost out there and have the station have to look for me. That would right, be it. Right. When you were out there and your crew also, did you see, was there any wildlife that lived down there in the South Pole? There is nothing at the South Pole. There is, you know, it's interesting. We have the, you go to McMurdo Station, or you know, Coastal Stations, uh, Palmer Station, they have killer whales, they have seals, they have sea lions, all, all these cool things. There's nothing but ice for 800 miles, the closest, and 1,000 miles plus in farther directions from that station. Nothing living out there. So when you're out, the, the just for perspective, the size of the ice landmass, if you will, the South Pole, it's is it like bigger than the than Texas, bigger than the United States? How big is it down there? Oh yeah, that's a good one. I've seen it laid on things and I don't remember it, but it's big. I mean, it's big. It's it's big. Um, and I, I wish I had that's a good question. It's good that when you see it laid on like a continent, see how big it is. But mm -hmm. it's big. And at the South Pole, probably the closest thing to us would have been the Vostok station around 700 miles away, or maybe the, maybe the Japanese dome Fuji, I don't know, but nonetheless, there's nothing. You're out there with nothing. You're out there with, uh, you know, once that last plane leaves uh, February 15th, and those, there's a couple little flights that transit through, um, you're not getting out of there. Mm -hmm. And, and to me, it was never an issue, but I think some people, it could be a big issue. Now there's other areas in Antarctica that are there's other stations in there. I guess do other countries have a presence in different areas? And what you're referring to in your book mostly is the U.S. station at at the South Pole. But there's other stations throughout Antarctica. Is that correct? Yes, there are. Uh, the, on the coast, there's many many countries have stations. South Africa, Chile, the Russians. Uh, the French, uh, and, and, and in the interior, you have the Concordia, a little bit, you know, you have things like the Concordia Station, Dome Fuji in the interior, and then the Russian Vostok. Vostok means east. Um, uh, that's what the word means. But we, there are other presence, uh, but we are the only current country to have a station at the South Pole. What's the consensus as to kind of who owns it, if, if anybody, or is it this is a global territory, if you will, yeah. and it's treated as such or and not just in talk speak, but in reality, it's really a global uh, land. Question. It, it is, Robert. And, and that's the really cool thing about Antarctica. There's an Antarctic Treaty has all these signatories that have, that have, and I don't remember how many it is now. There's like 12 or 13 or something original signatories. And then other countries have jumped on the, on the bandwagon and have agreed that Antarctica is, is the, the world's, you know, everyone you know, has it. It's, it's a world resource. It will not be militarized. And, and so far, so good with that. And uh, while other countries have a presence, there are a couple of countries that try to say they have a claim for Antarctic land, but most of the world just ignores it, and it, and it doesn't seem okay. like it matters. Now, what exactly? I know there's levels of security clearance, and you were a Marine, and then you're in South Pole, and something's going on there. So what actually can you talk about in terms of what were you guys doing? Uh, you know, what was the purpose yeah. of the mission? I mean, I know there's, yeah. you know, scientific research and this and that, but... What, what were you guys up to as much as you can talk about? 
Sure. You know, it's interesting. The, um, we work for the National Science Foundation and our mission was primarily science. The major projects down there, the South Pole Telescope, the Marvin Pomerantz Observatory, the, uh, the, the Aero, it was part of the NOAA, uh, National Oceanic, whatever uh, they are, Aeronautic Organization. And then the, uh, did I mention the ice cube, that neutrino detector, and then all kinds of different science in the summer. I will say this, military people do visit the place, Jones out there, you know, the military does support us. And my guess is somewhere there's a, you know, something going on. The military at least knows we're there. Um, I, other than the interaction I would have with them when they would visit, uh, um, they weren't, <laughs> they weren't <laughs> giving me any information on any kind of Antarctic missions, but I think they have knowledge of the place and they probably have their own plans. I got to ask you like the elephant in the room, because I do a lot of reading, a lot of research and talk to a lot of different guests. And, you know, let's start here. Admiral Byrd, he went down there and apparently the, the story is he he got his butt kicked by uh, kind of Nazi breakaway slash extraterrestrials who had technology and airships that were no match for I mean, he had no match for them with his uh, fleet. And he went back home and basically said, you know, we got to be careful about, you know, other nations or other beings, if you will, and they can circle circumvent the globe. And we can't do that right now. We have to be careful. So what's your sense? And then there's been a lot of politicians that have been sent down there. There's a lot of a lot of politicians have gone to Antarctica. So people, I think, are under the impression that there's something going on down there, and you hear about these stations being built, drilled way, way down under the ice. And what, what's, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you're on Guys, Guys Radio. So I got to ask you, what's your sense? Yeah. What can you talk about in terms of all of that? Because, you know, that information is out there. Okay. I think the best way to answer that one is I was uh, a couple months ago, I came back from assignment out of Kwajalein Atoll. Kwajalein Atoll is a U.S. Army kind of facility and it does missile defense stuff. And while I was there, I was eating lunch one day and a fellow saw my U.S. Antarctic program hat. He approached my table, says, so you worked at the South Pole? Yeah. And he said, uh, can you tell me about the aliens down there? And I said, there's no aliens down there. And then he said, okay, okay, can you, can you really, go ahead, really tell me about the aliens down there? And I said, I walked for 4,000 miles outside in the winter, and I never had an alien encounter. And I saw this guy, he visibly kind of slumped at the answer. And then I said, but if I were an alien, would I tell you the truth? <laughs> and he immediately, he immediately perked up. So there's my answer, Robert. <laughs> okay. I, I totally respect that uh, because, you know, there's just, just so much, and it's like, wow. So what was, as you as a person, how did you change with your three years down there? Did, did it have an effect on you in, in terms of who you are? Because you've been all over the world. You've been on these missions in Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and New Guinea. And you know, you're a world traveler and Marine. What did this experience do for you or to you? Well, it showed me it did several things. I thought I knew something about leadership. Um, and I learned that there was some more to learn with that. Uh, There's always more to learn to leadership and before my first winter one of the people that was departing on that last flight summer person said to me when they were leaving wayne get ready for the greatest adventure of your life and i laughed i laughed and i said 
<laughs> this won't be it. I was killed in the Amazon years ago. I've got a newspaper on the wall that says that. I've been around. It probably won't be the South Pole. I found out, and it was in its own way, it was a great adventure, particularly with the leadership angle. And I and I and I learned a lot about about people and about particularly uh, people that are in isolation and how that effects. And I learned how important it was to be a good leader and to care about these people. And to be a good leader, one must care more about their people than they do themselves. That's a difficult thing for many people. It wasn't so much for me, but it, it is a difficult thing for any leader to come to that point where their life comes first. They matter more than you do. That's something that I that I that I learned and it, I, it came home over and over and over. Um, I, 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 it put me in a situation of isolation, which I'd never been in quite like that. And I did find out that I like isolation. I like to be alone. Uh, I love being around my crews, but that, that's it, that, that intense isolation down there showed me that I really do enjoy isolation. And I also do, uh, there was nothing like being the leader of those wonderful men and women at the South Pole being the honor that I had being their leader. And mm -hmm. that's something that I'll never forget. It's with me all the time. So Wayne, did you have a completely different cruise those three years? Was, was there, was it all turned over? And do you stay in touch or do any of the folks who went through these missions stay in touch with each other? Oh yeah, fantastic. Uh, the crews mostly change out. So, so this is the deal, the way it works is uh, each year there's a new crew that comes in. Many will come in during the summer. They'll spend the entire summer, a new winter crew. They'll spend the entire summer and then they'll spend the entire winter. So most crew members uh, will spend a year at the South Pole, the winter over crew members. So since 1957, there's been new crews every year. Every crew has a photo on the wall, which is a magnificent thing to have your photo on that wall. Uh, the crews change. There are people who will who will come back. There's people who will do a back to back winter. They finish one, they go home for a few weeks. They come back. Uh, I ended up being the first winter manager in history to do three winters. Uh, in 65 years, only two others had done two winters, and I know why that is now because it's a very difficult job. Now, the record I'm nowhere near that. The record for some winters is like 15. That was done by. A uh, one of the German scientists, and then he was followed with another scientist at 14. Unfortunately, he recently passed away. And then it drops back to like six winters or something like that. But those that's a different situation that they're in than what you are in as the station leader. And there's some, some it's like, I don't want to embarrass anybody, so I didn't put a lot of facts. But there's been some past years where the station leaders had a really hard time and, and some terrible things happened. And so... Um, uh, I was always conscious of that, but I was the first to do three and uh, very appreciative of, of, of it. the records. Those kind of things mean nothing to me, but it is interesting that most all in 65 years that only two others have done two, done two winners. And I think it's a really difficult job. My hat's off to anybody that attempts it. It's not easy to do. Now, in terms of fraternization, when you have men and women or men and men and women and women, whatever the preference is, you're going to have some type of spark between people uh, and you're down there in the dark for a couple of months. How did you manage uh, fraternization and uh, did it go on? Uh, was it discouraged? Yeah. Did people have to sign off like they're not going to do any of that stuff? Or, and if so, did they do it anyway? I mean, there must have been some stuff going on. Robert, there was. And I touch on it in my book. I try not to embarrass too many people sure. because the people will find it fascinating. Uh, the fact is, 
comes to matters of the heart, that is one of the most difficult things for a leader to deal with. Um, to tell someone that, hey, they're out of line with the relationship. And I had to do it uh, uh, not often. Uh, it wasn't something that uh, my, my members are pretty cool, but there is no, there is total fragmentation. Anybody that wants to do whatever they want to do, and that was, you know, without getting into it, past leaders have done that. And that to me is a, is a thing that has caused some of the demise as far as the leaders down there that have decided they were going to establish relationships with crew members as the station leader. It's difficult to do. Uh, on my crews, they did. They, they coupled up fast. Uh, there's some horrifying stories that have happened in the years. It's a story of a, a man and a woman who, who went down there married and ended up splitting up in the middle right. of the year. And the woman found another boyfriend and moved into his room. Oh Think how, and wow. got, got, it was ugly. So there's been some ugly situations. You manage it the best you can, but matters of the heart, you know, are, are really difficult to control. You get into passions and such. So with your crew down there, I've got to think that a, a good, and I think you mentioned this in the book, a good portion of the crew is just to make sure things keep humming along. You need a plumber, you need a mechanic, you need a cook, you need people to, uh, you know, to, to keep cleaning up and stuff like that. How, what portion of your crew is, is, does with just the daily living logistics versus doing the science and the research? Yeah. Yeah. Out of 42, you'd have eight that are true scientists that, that, work there, uh, that, are, uh, that are actually committed to their science projects. Then there's two others who, are, who work with the, the main group, but they do science interface. They also do science. So you've got about 25% that are doing science, then you've got the rest of the support duties, which very, very important down there. Um, you know, the maintenance people that are keeping everybody alive, keeping the station operating, the medical people, the doctor, the PA, the nurse practitioner that are, that are, you know, giving the best medical care they can. And dentistry, if they have to, as a medical doctor, which is something to be seen. Um, and then the IT people and the supply people and the food service people, magnificent what they do as far as what the, the products that they put out there. You know, so you've got this captive little group and you've asked earlier about staying in touch we do in fact every uh, south pole winter over has a number i have a ring that has a number on. my number is one five two two but we all have numbers and there are uh, about 1600 of us now that are at the south pole and over 5,000 climb mount everest so we're a small group we do stay in contact there's facebook pages for us and things we get together from time to time and uh, it is a small exclusive little community that I'm proud to be a part of. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. The name of the book is Cold Wayne L. White, my guest on Guys Guys Radio. Just a few more questions about his three winters at the South Pole. I guess number one is what would be the top three qualifications you would look for in an individual who wants to go on one of these missions with you? Okay. Uh, the first would be that they are proficient in, in what they do, that they're very good at. Whether okay. they're a plumber or whether they're DMF, they should be the best of the best. Secondly, that they love what they do, that they love what they do, that it matters to them, you know, that they can, that they have these skills. There's some people that are quite skilled that don't necessarily care so much about what they do. They do it for livelihood. But I have, we found that people that really love what they do, they're a plumber, they love plumbing problems because, um, this is no, you know, just use a plunger in the toilet kind of a plumbing thing. They're they're doing valves and fuel lines and the power plant, things like that. Anyway, those things. And then the third, of course, which is just as important, 
would be their ability to get along with people. And so what we're looking for, what we were looking for, what I was looking for, men and women that were self-aware, that understood how they're being impacted others, that would give people a break, that generally cared about people, that you know weren't total narcissists. Um, and, and there's many people out there that, mm -hmm. that, that can do that. Overall, what were the, the same, same type of question? Top three challenges you faced by being down there as a, as a leader and as a human being for the journeys that you made there? Well, I'd say first was the ch main challenge was hiring and putting together that crew in the first okay. place. All the interviews you go through, um, it, it's, and then, and then the, the, the sad stories, you interview someone, you like them a lot, you offer the job and then something happens. They don't make the medical exam and then you lose them and you're super excited about getting a certain kind of person um, and then putting them through the, the training afterwards, the team building, fire training, the medical training. That's a heck of a challenge that you have to, you know, that you have to surmount before you go to the airport, fly with that crew down to the South Pole. Um, after that, you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't, it wasn't very difficult for me for the most part. I would say, you know, so I can't say there were any real challenges. It, it seemed to really fit my personality. The crews treated me with great respect. And that was something that I, that I, um, I enjoyed it and I kind of used it. I, I, I kept a gulf between them and myself, which was for their own good, not mine, but theirs. I was never just another crew member. I'd been around the world. I'd done a lot of things. And that worked, and it, and it was better for them. So that, that's kind of how it worked for me. It wasn't okay. hard. All right. Wayne Wonderful. L. White, my special guest on Guys, Guys Radio. The name of the book is Cold Three Winters at the South Pole. Last question for you, Wayne. Would you go back? I'd go back in a heartbeat. And I, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. But I was. I think about it sometimes. I've got all these other things to do now with the book. And I've got another book that I actually wrote prior to Cold that I put on that I put kind of on the shelf because that's to do with my contracting work around the world. 1,500 okay. people, contractors were killed in Iraq. They didn't come home and flag drip coffins and uh, that. So I'm working on that. Yeah. Okay. So where can, uh, great job, where can folks find out more about you and, and your book? Well, you can certainly buy my book on, on Barnes & Noble or Barnes & Noble and all the, any of the other uh, you know, book sites, it's on Walmart, it's on okay. Great. the other big ones, all the things. But I'm, I'm on Facebook and I'm, my stuff is all public. So if you just Google Wayne White South Pole or Wayne White Explorer, a lot of kind of fun stuff comes up. I am not self-promotional. I have to be with this book. In general, I don't like it. But I'm here today. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you and great job and really interesting stuff. So our special guest, Wayne L. White, thank you so much for being on Guys Guys Radio. You're a real guys guy, I got to tell you that. You're a man's man. <laughs> Robert, it was, a, it was wonderful. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. It's Guys Guy Radio. Okay, pun intended. We just got to the tip of the iceberg with our wonderful conversation with Wayne L. White. And what did we learn? Well, I think we learned that there's cold and then there's colder and then there's the coldest. And Wayne spent three winters at the southern tip of the planet Earth, and he has experienced a level of cold weather 
an environment that probably very few of us have even come close to. I mentioned my coldest I could remember was a business trip in Boston where it was somewhere between four and zero degrees. And I'm sure for the folks up there, they're laughing and they say, well, we deal with that every winter, dude. So I get it. But cold is relative. And for me, I was just very cold at that point. Wayne has dealt with minus 76 on average. And, and what did we learn? I think we learned a lot, but uh, a lot of facts also about the South Pole. But one of the things I think that I found was very compelling was that the challenges of weather were one thing, and the, the teams were well prepared for that. They had great maintenance. They had great doctors. They had great uh, people preparing the food and mechanics and all of that stuff to keep logistics, to keep things rolling on the South Pole. But the biggest challenge uh, that I picked up from Wayne, from his book and from his comments, was getting the right mix of people. Because, you know, if you work in a, wherever you work, you deal with a group of people, there's always going to be some type of issues because it's just the human nature. I know from my experience in advertising and on the client side that I always found that coming up with a business solution was easy for me. What was challenging was getting everybody on board, either influencing the client or the internal teams about the vision and the solution and just getting or or just convincing management, but putting it out there in a way that everybody could claim ownership of it and get along, get on board for the ride because you're dealing with ego, you're dealing with a lot of issues that people have that, that come into the office that don't belong there. I remember I had a a boss one time and he couldn't function if he was having tr trouble with his trouble with his girlfriend. And like that really got in the way because he was at a senior level and I was too. And I was like, okay, nothing's going to get done with him today because he's having issues there. And that's just the way it is. It's the people issues that are the most challenging. So we have to be empathetic. We have to be positive. We have to take a step back and not take things personally and say, okay, how can I make this work? And I think having the right attitude was probably the most important along with the skill set, of course, but the most important aspect of uh, having a successful expedition in Antarctica. So thank you, Wayne L. White, for some fantastic stories, fascinating stories. So Guys Guys Radio, we're here every Wednesday evening at 8 p.m. Pacific time on KCAA Radio here in Southern California, 106.5 FM, 1050 AM. The show rebroadcasts on KCAA every Sunday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. The podcast and YouTube and Rumble post worldwide every Thursday. We're downloaded in over 101 countries. You can stream, you can listen live, you can download, you can watch the show, you can listen to the show. So there's no excuse for you not to be able to find Guys Guys Radio and what we call Guys Guys TV. Just use my name, Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I, in your Google searches or whatever, or YouTube, and you'll find me. You'll find the show and you'll find all our interviews in a library there that you can access whenever you want, 24-7, and it's all for free, all for you. You can also check out my website, robertmanny.com, M-A-N-N-I.com, and there's over 300 articles about dating, relationships, wellness, family, business, sports, all kinds of stuff, uh, fitness, and I think you'll really enjoy those. Again, all free, and you, you can also download three Three chapters of my novel, The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love, which is really the source material for everything Guy's Guy. And as you know, Guy's Guy is not about just guys. It's about men and women being at their best, raising our frequency, leaving, leaving the best lives we can, and, and sharing. 
and uh, you know, really passing it, passing it forward, paying it forward, passing it along, whatever you want to refer to it as, just helping one another because we're in crazy times right now and there's a lot of fear being propagated on us. And I think it's very, very, very important that we don't succumb to what is being uh, sent our way by mass media. I know there's a lot of information and entertainment there, but also the, the vibe there, you have to be, really be careful uh, how you pick and choose media. But that's your business. What I offer you here on Guys Guys Radio, we bring you information from thought leaders from a variety of fields, and then you can determine what you vibe with. Every show is different. Every guest is different. And as you've, if you've been along for the ride, you've noticed that, that we've had over 535 shows, and I've interviewed over 650 guests. So lots of information there. I really spend a lot of time qualifying my guests. If you want to check out my novel, just go on Amazon. You can read the reviews. You can download the three free chapters and then pick it up on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever you purchase your books. You can get a physical copy or a digital copy. Great present for Christmas because it's about relationships. The story is timeless. It's fun. It's fast. It's frothy. People really seem to enjoy it, both men and women, because nobody's really done what I've done with the work. And it's been called been hailed as the male successor to Sex in the City. So the guy's guy's guide to love. And if you support the work we're doing here, if you like the content, you enjoy the interview and the guests, please subscribe across our, uh, our platforms, wherever you consume, Guys Guys Radio and Guys Guys TV. Thank you to all my guests. Thank you to Chris, my wonderful producer who performs magic each and every show. And most of all, thank you, my wonderful audience, for being along for the ride. And as we keep continue to grow. I promise you I'll do my very best to bring you the best guests, the best information to help you along in your daily lives. So Guys Guys Radio, I'll see you again next week. Until then, like I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. <laughs>